little over a year ago, we did an episode of It's Been a Minute all about coming out day and the history of the gay rights movement and the big 1987 gay rights march in D.C. After the episode aired, we heard from someone. I'm Cameron Lane, and I'm currently living in southern Florida. Cameron heard us talk about that march. You asked the woman that you were speaking with if, if she had been there, and she said, oh, yeah, and I was like, I was there! <laughs> yes, she was. And she sent me this big, beautiful scrapbook she made full of photos from that day. I think I took something like nine rolls of pictures that day. I called Cameron and had her talk me through some of those pictures. In one of them, there is the cutest kid I've maybe ever seen in my life. The young child is my daughter, and she is now 40. <laughs> What's her name? Her name is Talia. And, um, Cameron and her scrapbook remind me of why I love public radio. I love it because we don't just tell you today's news. Public radio also helps preserve our shared history. It's really important to have a place for, for broader conversation and a deeper look at our cultural history and, and who we are and where we come from and, and where we're going. I truly believe this work is worth your support. Go to donate.npr.org Sam to get started with your donation to the public radio station of your choosing. That's donate.npr.org Sam. And sincerely, thank you. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, senior editor and correspondent for NPR's Washington desk, Ron Elding, and host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, Lulu Garcia-Navarro. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guests, Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent with NPR Politics, and Lulu Garcia-Navarro, host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday. How tired are y'all? <laughs> so Ron and I did 12 hours of so impeachment I heard. coverage. So I, heard. <laughs> I have to say, I actually lay in bed um, after the impeachment vote and stared up at the ceiling. <laughs> In a kind of coma, my husband sort of tiptoed in and brought me a glass of wine, but didn't want to say anything <laughs> because I looked so traumatized. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I, I said to myself, you know what? We really need tomorrow night. We really need a debate among the Democratic presidential candidates. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> Let's yeah. have that. Put a cherry on this cake. Yeah, right. Yes. Well, I'm going to cheer you both up. We are going to talk about the news of the year this episode, which includes a lot of talk about politics. But first, I want to play a little audio of what has been for me the biggest story, not in my week, but kind of in my year. It is the surprising dominance of a very old song. Y'all know what this is, right? Of course. This is the Mariah Carey Christmas classic, All I Want for Christmas is You. Fun fact, Ron and Lulu, this week, for the first time in 25 years, it hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. It's, it's, it's crazy. You know, there's there's a movie that that figures in, uh, Love Actually, which is yes. a greatly controversial movie. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Oh, yes. Doesn't hold up well. So in the last several years, Mariah Carey has become an internet meme queen. 
And her team has glommed onto that. And every year they've gotten bigger and bigger with their social media kind of outreach for this song. So two years ago it hit number seven. Last wow. year it hit number three. And this year they went all out. They made a new video for this song. They put a new album out with the song just to bump it up those charts. And it worked. That's I'm just really happy for Mariah. I am Team Mariah, 100%, and I'm super happy that this happened. I love it. You know, it's funny, though. I was thinking about how this 25-year-old song hit number one this week, and it kind of confirmed this trend I've seen all year. Like, a lot of the stuff that we've really enjoyed this year is old stuff. So I went back through the top 10 grossing movies of 2019 here in the Mm. States. Nine of the top 10 grossing films this year were either part of a comic book franchise or Disney reboots and sequels. What do you think that's about? Do you think that's about nostalgia, that we're kind of (laughs) looking at 2019 and going, beam me back? (laughs) Exactly. That's what I think it is. No one wants to be in this year. That's all true. Plus, there's, of course, the phenomenon of the proven, whatever we know sells more of that. Yeah. 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 Sell more of that old stuff. It feels better. Even on Netflix. The top two shows on that platform are Friends in the Office. We like old stuff. And there's so much good new stuff. But Is there? Yes. Yes, there is. <laughs> yes. yes, there is. We there is we have discussed this before, Sam. We, we have, have very different tastes. Oh, we do. We do. <laughs> All right. Usually we kick off the show by having my panelists talk about the week of news. But I brought in the big guns this episode to help us recap the year of news. So this year, both of my panelists, Ron and Lulu, y'all are going to have three words about the year. And Lulu... You're up first. My three words are ya no mas, um, which okay. means no more. Uh, basically, this was the year where so many people across the globe said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. This was a year of global protests, mass movements of, of mm. people in so many countries protesting a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. I, I'm just going to tick through some of them. I mean, I want it. Yeah. India. Um, they're protesting the Citizenship Amendment Act right now, but they had protests in Kashmir. That's that contested region between India and Pakistan. Hong Kong, uh, protesting more democratic autonomy from China. Australia, protesting climate change. Latin America, huge protests. Chile, Ecuador, Bolivia. Haiti, there's been protests. Nicaragua, Lebanon, they've been protesting corruption. Iraq, protesting corruption. Algeria, oh my goodness. there's been a whole year of protests in Algeria that's gotten not a lot of coverage. But yeah. they there have been like mass movements of people out there. Barcelona in Spain, oh Ethiopia. I mean, it's gone on and on and on. Lulu, doesn't it? I'm hearing you go through that list. I feel like a lot of Americans haven't picked up on this trend and haven't noticed it? Well, I think that's true for a number of reasons. First of all, I think we've been kind of consumed with our own stuff. So we might have been looking a little bit inward. I don't know if that's true. Call me crazy. (laughs) Um, So I think there's that. I think the way that these protests have been covered by the news media have been pretty bitty. We've heard about Iraq. We might have heard about Lebanon, Chile. But we didn't sort of put it all together and think, why are... All these people in different places um, all over the world taking to the streets and saying, we want change. Yeah. So why is that? <laughs> why? I mean, well, I mean, tell I th- me the reasons. So I think personally, so this is just my personal opinion. Yeah. I've talked to a few people about it. But when we look at these protests, they fall into certain buckets. Okay. Um, so you first have this sort of bucket where you're looking at people asking for more democracy, you know, where they're saying, this doesn't work. This system 
mm-hmm. doesn't work, and I want change. Yeah. Uh, and then you have sort of the other ones where they're looking at corruption. They're looking at the system of capitalism almost and huh. saying there's massive global inequality. We want our fair share of the pie. That's, you know, a lot of people saying, I look at people on social media. I know how rich people live. I see what mm-hmm. they are experiencing. Why don't I have that? Mm-hmm. And so there's just an enormous amount of dissatisfaction. And I think underneath this all is that we're living in a time right now where um, we're not even aware of the forces that are shaping our lives. Mm. Uh, and certainly our governments are not able to respond to those forces. So if you think about climate change, mm-hmm. in Australia, you're having record temperatures, wildfires. Mm-hmm. Chile, one of the reasons that the Chilean protests happened um, mm-hmm. was because there was a massive drought. Mm-hmm. And so you might not connect Chile and Australia, but they are connected. Mm. And the other thing that connects them is the fact that governments just don't know how to respond to these massive, massive changes. So, Ron, you'll talk more about U.S. politics in a bit, but I do want to ask you, do you see any of this trend of protest across the world being felt at all, you know, here in the States? I mean, we've had a year full of unrest as well. Absolutely. And this is really to completely adhere to and and cohere with everything that Lulu just said. Uh, Populations are on the move. And some of the protests that you see in some of the more developed countries is the sense of encroachment that they're feeling mm, that's right. from those moving populations. So Brexit, mm. yeah, you can talk about the economic questions of whether the British want to be in the EU, the European Union, or not for trade purposes. But what drove the Brexit vote and what is still driving the big divide in the United Kingdom is this sudden influx of people from all around the world. Now, yeah. the, the, the British went out into the world for centuries and colonized. <laughs> and, yeah. and now the world is coming back to Great Britain. And mm-hmm. they need these people for labor purposes. They need labor force and they don't have enough indigenous population. So they know they need these folks, but they feel that they're being culturally displaced by the new arrivals. And we see the same thing in the United States in the Trump revolution. I Mm. think about this a lot um, because obviously this is the era that we're living in. And one of the things I want to bring up Chile and again, Australia as a counterpoint to this. We talk about the fact that um, in Australia, they voted a right wing government. In Chile, they did as well. These are governments that are ill-equipped to deal in many ways with the great challenge, I believe, of our time, which is climate change. Mm. And so I think part of this is that what you're saying. But I also think it's that people want simple answers to very, very complicated questions. And they are hearkening back to leaders that give them very, very short answers to very complicated questions. And they're being whipped up on immigration, on these other issues. But that's also a very complicated issue that has perhaps a more simple answer, a wall, uh, Brexit. You know, Mm -hmm. they have one word answers to that particular question, whereas climate change and all these other things don't. And I think that politicians that are giving quite simple answers, um, I feel, are gaining more traction in certain ways because of people's confusion about their lives. And climate change is going to be with us. It's going to intensify. Uh, In this country, perhaps it does collide with other forces that are going on. And the three words that I would bring up here are town versus country. 
Okay. We have had for a very long time, very obviously, uh, uh, a difference between people who experience the United States in small communities or on farms. And, uh, you know, until about 1900, most of the people in the country lived on farms, not mm-hmm. just in rural areas, but lived on farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, of course, changed in the 20th century. The first census to show that it changed was 1920. So Congress ignored it for the entire decade of the 1920s. They just said, well, we won't reapportion because we don't like the results of the census. We don't (laughs) like the reality that's being shown to us. We see something very similar 100 Mm. years later. As we go into the 2020s, you see people saying, well, wait a minute, do we really want to just go strictly by population? And we see people coming out on the floor of the House in the debate on Wednesday, Mm. showing a huge map with lots of red on it and saying, look, the country is hugely red. Measuring, of course, acreage. Measuring, of course, enormous states that vote Republican and are enormous states, but don't have that many people. So here's one way to think of it. We have just passed a statistical sort of marker here, a milestone. We now have most of the people in the United States, 52%, living in just nine states. And that trend is going to continue. Mm. The uh, big states, you know, California, Texas, Florida, New York, et cetera. Uh, are going to get more and more populous relative to the rest of the country. So we're already at a point where 52% live in just nine states. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. you take the least populous states, take, say, for example, the half of the states that are least populous, 26 mm-hmm. states, roughly half. Mm-hmm. They have only 18% of the population. Wow. So then half of the country only has 18 senators. Exactly. Then when you take that into political terms, go to the Senate. Uh, Kansas gets two senators. Wyoming gets two senators. New York, Florida, Texas yeah. each get two senators. So here's how it works out. Mm-hmm. 18 senators, less than a fifth, less than mm-hmm. one in five mm-hmm. for most of the population of the country, while just 18% of the country's population gets a majority of the Senate at 52 yeah. So my question for you, Ron, though, if this year in American politics is a year of uh, an exaggerated almost rural-urban divide, how much worse did it get this year? Because that divide has been with us for a while. And I wonder, you know, the numbers are changing, but also it seems that American politicians are more inclined to play up that divide right now, it seems. Well, big population changes tend to be incremental, taking some time to happen, but they also have tipping points. So I bring this up now because we have got the population-based House of Representatives. We watched them on Wednesday impeach the president, and we have the Senate just shrugging its shoulders essentially and saying, no way. So we're going to see more and more of that. We're going to see more and more fundamental splits between the population-based House and the, well, 1787 contract between the states that we Mm -hmm. call the Senate. That was the compromise that said, well, every state gets two. Uh, We're going to see more conflicts going forward by the decades, and we'll see if we can survive under that long-ago agreement, 232 years old. And there was another tipping point um, that's taking place, which is that the white majority is actually going to be no longer a white majority. Yeah. And we've already seen that in California. I believe it's already uh, the fact in Texas, although not for the voting age population. But I mean, like the majority of kids in public schools right now, Mm -hmm. they're not white. You know, the majority of kids born nowadays are not white. And 50,000, 50,000 Hispanic or Spanish-speaking young people turn 18 every month in this country who Mm. were born in this country. I'm not talking about immigrants. I'm talking about people born in the United States, and that's every month, and that's not going to stop. Yeah. I can't let you, Ron, talk about our year in American politics without asking you about the I-word 
impeachment. It happened this week. And, you know, speaking of divides, so it did. my big feeling in American politics for this year is that as the story of the Trump White House and impeachment gets bigger and bigger and more and more important, more people check out from that story. Why? Some may want to check out even more, and I certainly sympathize. But it is an election year in the United States, and there are going to be major events taking place in Great Britain and in Europe and all over the world. I think we're going to see more and more of a challenge to people to reprioritize a little bit public affairs in their lives, come Mm. to grips with the fact that they are citizens and that that has certain requirements and that they do need to participate, especially in an election year. I'll also say one word, which is Russia. Uh, Mm. You know, we saw in 2016 that Russia interfered in our elections. There is uh, a lot of discussion about not only Russia, but what other entities will try and interfere in the election in 2020. Um, And those entities are certainly internal, but some of them will be um, not from this country. And so I I think that we will hear discussion about this. And the fact of the matter is that the president got impeached not on anything that happened here in the United States. He got impeached over a phone call with the president of Ukraine. And Mm. so what I always try and tell people as a longtime foreign correspondent, which I was, um, Mm -hmm. what happens elsewhere will land on your doorstep at one point or another. After the break, we talk China. This year has been full of headlines, all about American corporations changing the ways they do business to maintain their foothold in the very, very big Chinese marketplace. Hollywood, the NBA, Apple, they have all acquiesced in some way to the Chinese government. How should we feel about that? We'll talk it out after the break. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn at the end of your first year? Plus, it's automatic, and there's no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Millions of people a year are getting their cash back matched like rain falling from the sky. Cash back match only from Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Support also comes from State Farm, whose agents know that your car and home are more than just big purchases. They're a big part of your life. You put the time into making them your own. So now it's time to protect them with your own personal State Farm agent. Not only do they truly get you, but they'll be there for you when you need them. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. Sponsored by State Farm. Talk to an agent today at 1-800-STATE-FARM or by visiting statefarm.com. We're wrapping up 2019 on Pop Culture Happy Hour by looking at everything we saw and heard this year and choosing just 15 favorite things. Could be a song, a moment, a movie, anything we think is the best of the best of the year. Here are picks on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm your host, Sam Sanders, and this week we are catching up on the year that was. I'm joined by two guests this weekend, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, and Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent for NPR Politics. I wouldn't recap this year with any other two people. Aww. Thank you. Thank I wouldn't you. repeat this year with any other two people. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't repeat this year with anyone. <laughs> 
All right. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. So this week I saw a weird headline, Ron and Lulu, that kind of reaffirmed uh, how big one storyline has been this year. So there's this soccer star uh, from the Arsenal Football Club in England. His name is Mazut Ozil. And he spoke out on Instagram this week about how the Chinese government treats Muslim Uyghurs. After he posted this critique of China, the Chinese state broadcaster pulled an Arsenal football game off Chinese TV just because of the post. Um, And then, of course, the biggest headline in this regard uh, was the NBA almost facing a blackout in China as well after a Houston Rockets executive expressed support for protesters in Hong Kong a few months ago. And I'm wondering, for the next year, um, how much bigger will this story get? Uh, So I called up a friend of the show, Eric Schwartzel. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal who covers the entertainment industry and American business. Eric Schwartzel. Thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Eric told me this whole thing with China and the NBA. It taught the NBA a lesson that Hollywood has figured out a while back. Uh, And this is a lesson that more and more American companies and industries are grappling with now. And the lesson is dealing with China is always a trade-off. Yeah, there have been some instances in Hollywood history that mirror the NBA situation remarkably. Mm. Anytime Hollywood makes a movie that China has taken offense to. Uh, China lets its displeasure known. There are (laughs) state newspapers that will publish articles or editorials saying, we are not happy about this, and the studios need to get in line. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes, the studios will respond. So we're not going to see a major studio make another movie about the Dalai Lama, because 20 years ago, they tried, and China threatened to kick out all of their business. Wow. Um, I think there is an argument also that's made oftentimes within, within the NBA and within Hollywood that, yes, we might have to make compromises to access this market, but getting this market a little bit of our product or you know a, a modified version of it mm-hmm. is better than nothing at all. Mm-hmm. That's been an argument made by companies like Apple and Shutterstock and even Hollywood Studios that, yes, we have to make compromises. So then is a big takeaway in seeing how Hollywood's response compares to the NBA's response to China is a big takeaway. Um, Both of these big industries ultimately learn how to be quiet and keep that Chinese business. They learn how to be quiet. I mean, I think you saw that in with the NBA's response, where Mm -hmm. eventually coaches and players and executives, some of whom until this moment had had no compunction with talking about politics and talking about certainly U.S. politics and talking about Trump and and various things like that suddenly were very quiet on the issue, Mm. um, saying that they had not studied it enough, that it was not their place to Mm. remark on it. And there was a bit of an about face. Yeah, which is really interesting to see a league like the NBA say, it's not our place to talk about X, Y, Z when they have been outspoken on issues of things like racial justice here in right. the States. You know? Right. So I want to talk about this right now at the end of the year because it feels like it hasn't just been the NBA grappling with China in this way. You know, we saw some headlines this past October about Apple telling some Apple TV Plus show developers not to anger China. Um, it seems like every few months we've been hearing about clashes between American big business and China. Does it feel like 2019 was a big year in this regard or am I just seeing stuff? Absolutely. And I think a, a lot of what's been happening has been affecting U.S. businesses 
for many years, but it just seems like it has taken on a much more, there's been much more public awareness about it mm-hmm. to begin with. And I think that when you have a, a, um, an issue that Ted Cruz and AOC are in agreement on, it's going to catch fire, yeah. right? Yeah. And And I think that this clash, this tension between American values and international business mm-hmm. is just getting more and more fraught, especially as you've seen more and more attention drawn to Chinese politics themselves. Mm-hmm. And and the Hong Kong protests have done that mm-hmm. essentially more than anything in the past several years. Wow. And a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, are supportive of those protests or at least relate to them on some level. And so it's kind of thrown everything into the pot when it comes to if you are a business based in the U.S., what concessions are you making to get access to the China market? And is any of those concessions a step too far? Yeah. As an American, seeing this year of China headlines in this regard, the question I ask to myself is, should I be mad about this on principle? Should I be mad when these companies, and in many ways feel intrinsically American, are capitulating to values that in some ways seem to be not our own? It is a it's a very tough question, and I think if you had the CEO of any of these companies in here, um, there are any number of cases to be made for um, why working in China under these concessions is necessary. Some say they have a fiduciary duty to shareholders to you know maximize profits. Yeah, that is certainly an argument. Yeah, um, others would say, look, if we don't work with China in these respects. Chinese businesses will take business away from U.S. firms, right? Yeah. Um, So there are any number of cases to be made. um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's just going to come down to these case-by-case bases where it's going to either be, is this a concession that we're willing to live with? Mm -hmm. Or is this feel like, no, now you're letting China set the rules? Yeah. Some of what this feels like as well, like this year of headlines concerning American business in China and interaction, a year of headlines about Hong Kong protests, I feel like every decade, Americans need to have a boogeyman, another country to worry about. During the Cold War, it was Russia. We were very afraid of Japan and their economy a few decades ago. Something about the American psyche feels a need to embrace storylines that act as if we have another country to fear. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's smart. And I think that... um Yeah, the context, the larger context that I think it's important to place this in is that there are larger existential questions being asked about the role of America in the world. In the world, (laughs) right? And and certainly China has made no bones about its ambitions around the world. So yeah, you're right. I think any time we start to see these scenarios where it looks like, for lack of a better word, China won. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of triggers all of those this larger really concerns about deep response. Exactly. What are we what are we doing? Yeah. Are we and still I think on the, top of the world? Exactly. And the and the other big the, the big difference though, I think, because this comes up whenever I've been when I've been researching Hollywood and, and foreign investment into Hollywood, is that there have been these concerns before, like, yes, is Japan taking over? When Japan bought a studio, there was there was very similar headlines, right? Mm-hmm. Like to to the kind of the worst kind of alarmist mm-hmm. response you might see to China coming into Hollywood. The the difference though is that none of those countries before had 1.4 billion <laughs> consumers yeah. to use as leverage. Yeah. And that's the case with the NBA now. Mm-hmm. That's the case with companies like Apple, where they have to sell a lot of phones, but also have to manufacture those phones mm-hmm. in China. Um, and it's the case in Hollywood, where you can have a movie that flops here, but still turns a profit because 
enough Chinese people go to see it. Yeah. I do think the big moral of the story this year with China and the way companies like Apple uh, and the NBA and big industries like Hollywood interact with China is the marketplace usually wins. Right. Right. Thanks again to Eric Schwartzel, friend of this show and entertainment reporter at The Wall Street Journal. All right, it's time for break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? Year-end edition. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town, or around the world. Zoom ties together all of your unified communication tools into one easy platform for video conferencing, phone calls, group chat, webinars, and conference rooms. Zoom is how business gets done. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Support also comes from Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders teams confront hard facts in conflict and crisis zones. When others look away, they step in to act. In emergencies and their aftermath, they provide essential health care, run hospitals and clinics, perform surgery, battle epidemics, carry out vaccination campaigns, and more. Information on their efforts and campaigns in over 70 countries can be found at doctorswithoutborders.org. Hey, y'all, before we get back to the show, I want to remind you one more time of how you can keep this show coming to you every week by supporting the work of your local NPR member station. To do that, go to donate.npr.org slash Sam or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, joined in studio this weekend by two guests, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, and Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent with NPR Politics. My friends, it is time. For my favorite game, Who Said That? The rules stay the same. I share a quote. You got to tell me who said it or guess the story that I'm talking about. But because it's our year-end episode, these quotes could have come from any point during this whole year. And we're going to do not just three quotes, but five. Oh, yay. (laughs) Don't sound so excited. Yes, yes. Uh, there are no buzzers. We're on a public radio budget. Just scream out the answer if you think you have it. You ready? Yep. Okay. Okay. First quote. How any woman does what they do is beyond comprehension. Who said that? Oh, I can think of so many people who might have said it under so many different circumstances. circumstances. <laughs> it was tied to a big birth this year. Yeah, oh. I know. Oh, it was. Oh, of course. It was uh, Prince Harry. Yes. Prince Harry uh, became a father in May of this year, and I don't care how many times those royals have babies, it always warms my heart each and every time. <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. Wasn't I it beautiful? love them. So yeah. he was singing the praises of his wife, Meghan Markle, Duchess of Sussex, after she gave birth to their baby boy. Uh, this was the most awesome royal name. His name is Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor. Prince Archie. 
The royals, you know, they're so cute when they're little. They are I cute know, right? when they're little. <laughs> no, when they're little, right. Uh, you got that point, Lulu. Woohoo! <laughs> Next quote. Guess what we're talking about. The quote is, It's what you drink when you're chilling at the beach, partying at music festivals, and of course, earning enough money to live your best carefree life. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to tell you what that is. And I, I, this, this, you know, you know, when you go to those corners of the internet, and like this has some resonance, but I wouldn't be able to actually, you know. This was a an alcoholic beverage that had a big spike in popularity this year. I, I'm taking a wild stab here, but Cristal. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that it? Yeah. That, that was the last course. decade. That, that was the last decade. No, okay. Yeah. okay, I'm just going to start spelling out the name of the beverage. W. H, I, keep going. T, white Russian. Can I just are we tell back to the dude? Are we back no, to the dude with the white like Russian? Second word: C L A W. Claw. Yes. White oh, claw. You, oh, okay. I yes. heard about this. Yeah, yeah, but no. Sorry. Yeah. Now I feel. Now you see, this is what I'm saying. This oh is like embarrassing. God. White claw is 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 the alcoholic beverage craze sweeping the nation. Okay. Why? Spiked seltzer. Oh. So it's like a lacroix. But they add a little And it's got zero sugar, right? Exactly, yes. So that quote comes from an article from the website Eater. It was written by Amy McCarthy trying to explain the appeal of White Claw. This was the year of White Claw and hard seltzer in general. Um, Nielsen says sales of spiked seltzer surpassed $1 billion in the last year. I mean, it's clear that we are not living our best life because instead of being at the beach drinking White Claw, we're in the, <laughs> we're studio, in the studio for 12, for 12 hours drinking coffee. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, that point goes to the universe. All right, next quote. So it's not so much what I personally think about books. The question you should be asking is what do you think about books? Who said that? Oh, of course. This is um, the woman who makes you throw everything away. Uh, Marie Kondo. <laughs> now, now. <laughs> She's more than that. Uh, that no, quote, are you? I mean, no. This isn't the uh, Swedish you, you misunderstand me. <laughs> I dream of Marie Kondo coming to my house and throwing everything away, sometimes including my spouse and child. Yeah. And I would live in a pristine house by myself. Oh, my goodness. With books. So that quote comes from Marie Kondo. She is the tidying up guru, Netflix star. Uh, she's had best selling books about how to get your life tidier. And her whole thing is that. If there are things in your house that don't bring you joy, consider tossing them. But she got in trouble when on her show, she seemed to suggest that maybe people don't need all those books in their house once they've read them. So this is why my wife is in the closet saying, does this bring me joy? Does this bring me joy? (laughs) Exactly. Has she touched her shoulders and said out loud, does this bring me joy? Not my shoulders, but the shoulders of many garments. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next quote. We're going to play it for you. Guess who said this? This is obviously the British Parliament. I mean, this yeah, is but clearly. what's the guy's Parliament. name? Yep. What's the guy's oh, name? Oh, this is oh. the guy. Oh, he was obviously the, I forget his name, uh, but he's obviously uh, the, the, the guy who does the gavel, you know, order. his version of that. What's his, and I'm, he's good Lord, I'm married to a Brit. He's a speaker of <laughs> the, the British House of Commons. We'll give it to you, Ron. We'll give it to you. Yes. 
Yes. That uh, audio was from John Burkow. He held the speaker's chair in the U.K. Parliament for a very long time. And over the last year plus, he presided over some very contentious Brexit debates. And he became famous for the way in which he wrangled that parliament, which we just heard there. I loved it. It was fun. Anyways, this was a tough year for them over there. But John Burkow, uh, he's winning. So he stepped down from his seat this year, but now he's on the, like, speaker's circuit. So there was one report from Sky News recently. They said that for a night of election punditry, he got paid 60,000 pounds. One guy for whom Brexit has been very, very good. (laughs) (laughs) The only, right? (laughs) All right, fifth and final quote. Oh, well, you know, I'm worried about y'all getting this one. I apologize in advance. Because <laughs> we did so badly with White Claw. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the two were connected. You'll see. This quote is, it's about women and men being unapologetically them, just having a good time, hyping up their friends, doing you. I'm going to give you a Hard big seltzer? <laughs> Hard seltzer can be a part of this life. Right. I'm going to give you a big clue. Lisa. Oh, another female rapper who was responsible for the phrase Hot Girl Summer. What's oh, that rapper's name? God, you know. yes, I do know. I'm she so, I'm so terrible. You are going I, to yes, she does. phone. I am going really. to my phone because, you, because you I had it on the... You are supposed to do that. I know, you but I mean, but I feel... Device. I have terrible... I have she terrible, did the Tiny Desk concert. Referee. All right, then I'm, I'm then fine. I'm just going to... I was looking at... Her first name starts with an M. I'm terrible with names. Megan the Stallion. Can I just ask you a question? You said the two things were connected, and what you mean by connected is that it's pop culture and we might not get it because we're... We're not no. cool. No, I'm saying a lot of times to have a hot girl summer, you got to drink some white claw. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I didn't have a hot girl summer. I got to tell you. <laughs> so, anyways, this quote from Megan Thee Stallion was popularized this year. She had lyrics in her songs where she would mention being a hot girl. Her fans eventually coined the phrase "hot, hot girl, girl summer." summer. Mm, People yeah. began to use it to like. You know, caption the Instagram photos of them, like, having fun in the sun, looking glamorous, fabulous. The phrase became so big that by the end of the summer, Megan Thee Stallion had recorded a new song called Hot Girl Summer. Like, the meme made a song. Right. Had to happen. What was your peak Hot Girl Summer moment, Ron Elving? In 2019? I I want to hear what your... I I actually am here for this content right Uh, now. I can tell you you the high point of the summer for me was my daughter's wedding. Oh! And I actually got to sit in with the band for a few numbers uh, with my new son-in-law on drums and his father on guitar, and we had a great time. Lovely into this game. Um, I realized I really wasn't keeping count. I don't know who won. I'm sure Lulu won. Mm. I know she won. Lulu? Yeah, Lulu, I, you won. I, I win in spirit. Yeah. <laughs> you won. Two for Lulu. Yeah, I won. Two for Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, you did literally Google on your phone during the course but of I this didn't, game. I, well, that is true well, at the well. end. <laughs> but I didn't get the answer. You listen, uh, to the winner Lulu and to the almost winner Ron, I wish you both a happy hot girl 2020. Yeah, we need it. Yeah. I go Christmas to you. I'm going to go. I'm about to go <laughs> right now. Get Christmas. some white cloth. Get some white cloth. <laughs> yes. yes. All right. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They always do. Let's listen. Hey, Sam. This is Brianna Moshinsky from Middleton, Wisconsin. Did you know that only 6% of all private pilot certificates held in the United States are held by women? Well, the best part about my week is that I'm now one of those. Thanks. Love the show. 
Hi, Sam. This is Miles from Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is Abigail from Seattle, Washington. This is Drew from Raleigh, North Carolina. And the best part of my week was finishing my first semester of graduate school. The third class in my Master's of Music Education program. The best part of my week was graduating with my Master's in School Counseling. At 34 years old, I am finally, finally graduating from college. Hi Sam, this is Domati in Colombia. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer there and the best part of my week was going to the local river with some friends and explaining to them how to play Uno today. I met a cute girl at a bookstore. I asked her out and she said yes! I finally cleaned out and organized the closet that I've been meaning to clean and organize for over a year. Hi Sam, this is Sarah from Athens, Georgia, and the best thing that happened to me this week is that I performed in my first trapeze show. Um, It was both terrifying and awesome, and it made me really happy. Hi Sam, this is Karen in Austin. The best thing that happened to me this week is that my son got a haircut. The backstory is that he's 17 years old and he scheduled the appointment, remembered the appointment, drove to the appointment, got his hair cut, paid for it, and drove home. He walked in looking very nice and I didn't have to do anything. My parents call this a freedom point. Thanks a lot. Hope you're having a good week. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye-bye. So much adulting. Yeah. Aww. I like that. Yeah. Was, was that his first haircut? also our listeners are so much braver than me because i'm gonna tell you two things i would be so afraid to do fly a plane and swing on a trapeze Mm. but they did it thanks to all the listeners you heard there brianna miles abigail drew jenna domati Teresa, stason sarah and karen And thank you all for sharing the best parts of your week with us. Every week here on this show, we listen to all of them. You can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Uh, Just record the sound of your voice on your phone and send that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, Ron, Lulu, y'all both were two of the best parts of my week and, dare I say, my year. So thank you both. Ron Elving, senior correspondent and editor for NPR Politics, and Lulu Garcia Navarro, host of Weekend Edition Sunday. Thank y'all, and thank happy you. 2020. Thank you. Thank you, thank Sam. You both. Have a great 2020. Yeah. Yes. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our fearless editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. And I want to pause here uh, to pour some out for our fearless editor, Alex McCall. He's leaving us soon. He's going to go do some amazing work at NPR member station WAMU. But I want to thank Alex for all of his hard work on this show for the last year or so. Alex was the brains and muscle behind some of my favorite interviews of this year. He is one to watch. Know his name. You will hear it again. Alex, thank you for everything. We look forward to seeing and hearing and reading what you do next. All right. Also, big thanks to our engineer, Josh Newell. He's a Van Halen fan. Uh, Our director of programming is NPR's Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. Listeners, happy 19. Have a blessed 2020. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.